Hi everyone, it's me again. Just another quick announcement before we get started. The Sydney Science Festival is on once again, and as usual, in situ science is back. This time, not with one, but two live events. On the 15th of August, we'll be back at the Django Bar in the Camelot Lounge for another live podcast. We have another stellar lineup of scientists to discuss the weird and wonderful ways the life and science collide. And you get your chance to pick their brains and grill the scientists yourselves about what they do and why they do it. Tickets are online now, so visit com or search for Life vs. Science live podcast on the Sydney Science Festival website for more details. But before that, if you need a science warm-up event, the day before that, on the 14th of August, we're running our own In-Situ Science Trivia Night. This will be a fundraiser for everything that In-Situ Science does, so there will be prizes, raffles, games, all sorts of science trivia nonsense. Head to the Botany View Hotel in Newtown on the 14th of August. This one's a free event, so make sure you get there early, grab a spot, bring your team, and come up with your best science-themed team names. If you can't make it to the fundraiser but want to support In-Situ Science, you can become an In-Situ Science patron. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash in-situ science. You can pledge as little as a dollar a month to support everything In-Situ Science does, or visit in-situ-science.com and look for the donate button to support what we do. I'll be there for each of our live events during the Sydney Science Festival, so if you see me, come up and say hi. I'm on this side of the microphone. I don't get to see or hear from you guys so much, so it'll be great to see some of you at these events. But until then, here's another regular not-live podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome back, you're listening to In-Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what it is they do and why they do it. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode, I'm joined by behavioral ecologist and pollination biologist, Amy Martin. Hello, James. Hello for a second time. Yeah, hello. Apologies about <laughs> I am still just as excited <laughs> to be here. <laughs> yes, so, so you've listened to the podcast before? Yes, I have listened to the podcast before, and I feel like I've listened to this first part of the discussion between you and I before. That's weird. Yeah. It's deja vu yeah. happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, what, what did we talk about when I forgot to hit record? I, uh, mm-hmm. We talked about how you were my PhD co-supervisor yes. and you, uh, you, gave, you yelled at me, really, because I'm here recording a podcast instead of should be finishing my PhD. Yes. Um, <laughs> and then we talked about how I should be writing <laughs> and how, how writing goes and how um, a very good idea is to just try and write a little bit every day and just say you've done it so you can pat yourself on the back and then move on with your life. Yeah. Um, and that... You know, trying to procrastinate by saying you need a different keyboard or a different mouse, which is all things I've said. And in fact, I've purchased like a $500 keyboard because this will change my life. I'll I'll write better. Um, (laughs) It's not a good idea and you should just write anyway. Um, Mm. But the keyboard did help me. It was very good. It's very clicky. Oh, yes. I, I really like, I like it, yeah. Good. I noticed you were, uh, had your, your writing tablet out oh, yes. today. What's, what's that beast? I like that thing. It, it, not sponsored, right? But <laughs> it's, a, um, it's a Microsoft Surface mm-hmm. Pro, and I very, very much enjoy it. It saves me a lot of paper, and I read um, so many more academic articles now, I oh. think, because I just like don't have to print it out, and I can write it all, and it goes into a special database that i've made for myself how, how good the the stylus it's really good thing, yeah but actually it broke um <laughs> <laughs> like within three months of buying it it broke but um microsoft gave me a warranty and mm-hmm. they've sent me a brand new pin that's good 
I'm, yeah. I'm waiting for that pin to arrive though. No, my laptop's slowly dying. Mm. And I think I want to go for one of these either two in one things yeah. or a tablet or something so I can use it as a tablet. Yeah. As well. But I it's this whole new world of things I and I don't it. know. Yeah. I love it. I love all sorts of new technology, which is a bad <laughs> thing because it's very expensive. But um no, I love my 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 Surface Pro and Microsoft, if you want to sponsor in situ science, <laughs> get in touch. Info at in situ science. Mm, James is looking for a new computer <laughs> and 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 sponsorships for in situ science. Yeah, but yeah. I've also got this great idea in my head that if I get one of these devices, I'll just be a really uh, productive artist as well because I'll be able to sit and do digital art. Mm. Um, on the stylus. I mean, that's worked for me as well. I'm Good. not an artist, but <laughs> I have gotten more into art, um, mm. and I have been drawing little cartoons that maybe one day will see the light of day. But at the moment, they're oh. just for me. Mm. But um, <laughs> no, and um, that's actually like it's really easy to use and really right. nice. Yet, yeah, all right, yeah. I'm gonna check it out. Yeah. But how is the writing going? Good. You're looking, can you see light at the end of the thesis? I think so. Yes. Um, we had a meeting this morning, as we, did. we do with co-supervisors, and I made a little timeline, which I've sent to Anne. Um, <laughs> and once once we've figured out what dates things can actually get rid by, mm-hmm. is it still recording? Good. Yep. Um, <laughs> then I'll send it to you. Not that people need to know this information, but I have a timeline. We're just going to have a supervisor's meeting <laughs> here on the podcast. Um, I have it. a timeline, and things... I think things will get done and it'll be good. Good. Yeah. All right. And you're sticking to your daily writing ritual and doing analysis and all that sort of stuff. Yes. I think most of the analysis is done unless I decide I need to totally think about something in a different way, which which will happen after (laughs) I go to this conference (laughs) next week. So. (laughs) But the one thing you have to do at the end of your thesis, Mm -hmm. which I can't help with because I went through the Australian system and I don't know how it all works. It's a thesis defense. (laughs) Yeah. What is that? I don't know. Okay. Can you tell me? <laughs> um, I, I think you have to sit down with people to talk about your thesis. So uh, the people who have reviewed or marked or graded your thesis mm-hmm. will sit down with you in a room. And it's just apparently it's just a very nice conversation that you have unless somebody is mean. But right. you have a nice conversation with people about your work. It's an opportunity for them to ask questions and to point out things they think you should have done or could correct in your thesis. And you do that. And then you have biscuits afterwards or during. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people talk about thesis defenses as if it's something they have to pass. Mm. That it's they they sort of tear you to pieces and point out to your face everything that's wrong with the research mm. you've done. But you're saying this is not necessarily the case. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't done it yet. Oh. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> or is but that more what it's like in New Zealand, but not necessarily in? I don't know. I think I think often it's something that. Um, is daunting to people, mm. but I am very lucky in that uh, I grew up with parents that had lots of PhD students. Um, <laughs> so I watched all of these people go through it and all I remember are the biscuits and the tea and the lunch <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> um, and uh, it didn't end up seeming that bad. It just seemed like a conversation and probably because it's basically three or four years of your life that you've dedicated to one particular subject. Mm. Um, if somebody says you've done something wrong, they can probably feel pretty bad because you've like, you've tried very hard, but sometimes you're so close to things that you can't think of them in a different way. Mm. Um, so maybe that can feel then like you're getting torn apart, but I don't think, I like to think most people are genuinely nice yeah. and want to see you do the best science that you could have. So they're just showing interest, asking questions, 
maybe mean questions, maybe not. <laughs> um, I'll let you know in like six months or something when, when it's happened. Sure. <laughs> well, well, maybe I'll all come over for the biscuits when it all <laughs> happens. I mean, it's not like in... Aren't there other countries where you finish your thesis events and you get a sword? Yeah, that's Finland. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and a top hat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in Switzerland, um, at least uh, at the Coconuts Lab, um, <laughs> you get T-shirts and teddy bears. And um, one of my friends uh, like had a like a helmet made for herself. Well, uh, the, the lab made her a helmet and oh. so she could look like a Drosophila, <laughs> so, which is a fruit fly. Um, <laughs> so that sounds great. So I maybe did my PhD in the wrong place because I don't think I'm going to get a helmet here. But maybe I'll make one myself or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I just found out your university has a song. I, d- I didn't know that was a thing. Because we're, we're over here in the University of Auckland, mm. as we mentioned before. And my s- my primary school had a song. My university did. It's <laughs> 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 like a university anthem. Mm. Um, You know what? I think it was <laughs> oversold a bit. I don't <laughs> think most people at the University of Auckland do know this song. However... I think we're trying to push people mm. knowing this song a bit better. It's called Ruia. It's written by um, Michael Steedman, who works here at the University of Auckland. Um, it's a good song. I've figured out how to play it on an instrument. <laughs> um, but I don't think many people know it at all yet. So you can learn it, and then you can be even more a part of this university, James. Yep. Yep. This is kind of my second home, yeah. this place for some strange reason. I'm here at least once a year, I think. It's good. It's great. Yeah. I like New Zealand. Yeah, we've got birds <laughs> <laughs> it, it has one of those climates where you realize this is where people are supposed to live i don't know if the <laughs> i don't know if it's an australian thing there are lots of places in australia where people do live but climatically but probably shouldn't. shouldn't yes i when i did field work in australia it was 50 degrees celsius yeah. <laughs> some days i was sitting outside thinking how do people do this and sweating and like oh i had to go to the mall in my field gear to just, just sit to get the air con <laughs> happening yeah 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 um no i i uh don't know how you live in australia um, <laughs> I mean, there's some bits that are good, but other bits, most of it is dry and uninhabitable and there's no water and nothing really grows there. And then you come to a place like this and it's green and it rains. It and does <laughs> rain. <laughs> there, are, there are living things everywhere and you go, oh, yeah. Yes. I feel like there's more living things um and Ast- like living really interactive things in Australia, like the ibis. I love the ibis. <laughs> I know. you. What did you call them? Like trash? Uh, bin turkeys. Bin turkeys, yeah. yeah. Which is, I think is an unfair name for them. Cause <laughs> <laughs> they're really lovely. They'd come and visit me and try and eat my sandwiches when I was doing field work over in Australia. <laughs> and then, I, I like uh, them. Uh, yeah, I do <laughs> like them. They're, they're a nice exotic alternative to pigeons. Yeah, and we just sparrows have pigeons. And things, yeah. yeah, we just have pigeons and sparrows and um, what are they called? Miners. Mm. Which, you know, I'd prefer an ibis to a miner, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here in New Zealand, but as you said, you did all your field work in Australia. Yes. What were you working on? I was working on sexually deceptive orchids okay. that trick their male pollinator into mating with them so that they can get pollinated. All right. So what, what's yeah. this pollinator? Um, this pollinator is called um, Lysopimpla excelsa, but people like to call it the orchid dupe wasp. Yes. Which is, um, uh, I, I guess, a, a more apt name and Lysopimpla excelsa. But actually, <laughs> nobody uh, really knows about this wasp, at least in New Zealand. It's native to Australia and New Zealand, but 
kind of people don't see it or think about it. It does not sting you at all. It might mm. bite. There's been one rumor that somebody has been bitten by this wasp once, oh. but they never bit me. So <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. So yeah. if they're native in both Australia and New Zealand, mm-hmm. are they just easier to find in Australia? Or there's more of them? Um, I think they're easy to find in Australia. Um, in New Zealand, I tried to do some field work up there. Uh, the orchids that kind of trick them are only up in the very far north of mm. New Zealand. Um, but when I did field work there, a lot of the places that they were found, they live in swamps in New Zealand, um, had been drained. So the orchids had, oh. a lot of them had died or like I wasn't feeling too comfortable with cutting off a whole lot of the flowers and stopping <laughs> their population. So I just did a little bit of photography up there and, mm. and tried to do some small experiments without interfering too much with the orchids there. Um, but uh, I think they are more abundant and more active in Australia, mm-hmm. maybe because it's warmer. Um, and they also seem to be finding much more convenient places by the sound yes, of it. Yes, there's always toilets near my field sites in Australia. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're just finding... Just found everywhere. Dog parks yep. and mm-hmm. picnic areas and mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Good. I mean, it's a good way to pick a study species. Yes. It's if you can drive your car to, to it. To, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Proximity to bathrooms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so you have these orchids mm-hmm. that trick a wasp into mating with them. Mm-hmm. So instead of a regular flower that would draw in a pollinator with nectar, mm-hmm. these lure them in with... Uh, false promises yes so they smell like a um female wasp but maybe Mm. they might even smell better uh there is another student in australia who's working on that at the moment but they might be like a super attractive female to these Mm. males so they act as kind of the smell is a long distance um attractor for the males um and then the males will come in and uh it seems like they don't even really care what the orchids look like they'll just mate with them um so you can distill the scent off of the orchid and put it on a, a bead or a top of a nail or something and the males will mate with the nail <laughs> um <laughs> so it seems to be very much just the um the scent that is the main attraction for them it's a very All nice right. perfume yes. so what do they look like if not orchid or if not wasps um there's several species mm-hmm. um they're called cryptostylus orchids um and they Hmm, I'm trying to describe what they look like. My favorite one, my favorite description is cryptis of is of Cryptostylus subulata, and I think it looks like a little dragon. So oh. it's uh, oh, it's got like a nose, and the nose is red, and then it's got little dragon ears, these long green <laughs> things at the top, <laughs> and it's great. And then um, the other one that I worked on is Cryptostylus erecta, which is also known as the bonnet orchid, um, and it it kind of looks like a an ear. So they look, uh, these orchids, cryptostylus orchids, there's a bunch of them, but they, and they all look kind of dissimilar, but they have similar scents um, and still are able to attract in those wasps. So that's very interesting. So if, if, if you're walking around a dog park in Sydney, you look for tiny ground dragons. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, with red noses yeah. <laughs> or, or ears with like purpley red kind of spots on them. Mm. Mm. So a wasp finds an orchid. Yes. It lands on the orchid, then what happens? Then the wasp will ejaculate on the orchid. Okay. 
Get straight to the point. I don't there. know how else <laughs> to put it. I, I, I am known at the University of Auckland as the sperm girl. A lot of the students call me that um, because um, I spent a lot of time uh, counting the sperm that was in the ejaculate mm. that the wasps would deposit on the orchid while mating with the orchid. Okay. And that weeks and weeks of counting. Uh, so people would see me go into the microscopy lab and ask what I was doing, and I'd just say, oh, I'm counting sperm. <laughs> <laughs> you want to see my sperm? <laughs> there's there's, there's kind of no delicate way to talk about. I don't think so. Should I have put it more delicate? No, the males I don't think there is. Are very um, enamored by these orchids, yes. and they uh, interact with them in a loving way. Not really they loving. <laughs> it's often quite brief. Uh, um, pseudo copulation <laughs> yeah. is the technical term. Pseudo copulation is the term for when it's not actually got ejaculation involved so it's true it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right. it's true copulation when there is sperm or a spermatophore deposited onto mm. the individual in question or into <laughs> <laughs> the, the receiver the yeah yes <laughs> so there's lots of sexually deceptive orchids mm-hmm. but are most of them yes. uh, pseudo copulated as opposed to Truly copulated. <laughs> Probably, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of, in the uh, deceptive orchid and sexually deceptive orchid world, mm. there is a lot of work that is done with a focus on the orchid itself and not actually looking at the pollinator. And so um, it might be that uh, depositing sperm is a lot more frequent mm. than people think because it's actually not looked into very much my supervisor accidentally saw a small blob of sperm on the orchid (laughs) uh once and was like what is this and then then that's what made her think it was sperm and i think there's one other uh, i think lepanth's orchid is a sexually deceptive orchid that might have sperm because somebody found traces of sperm on it once so it's something that hasn't really been looked into properly yet so maybe copulation and not pseudocopulation is a lot more frequent than we think but mm. at the moment it's uh, mostly pseudocopulation so people see the pollinator usually a, a wasp uh, or a bee mating with the orchid but not actually leaving any mm. any sperm or at least they haven't checked for it but it, i mean the sperm dries, dries up very quickly so you have to be quite prompt in removing it from the orchid otherwise you might miss out on that finding so and yeah. this is going to be a stupid question mm-hmm. The flower doesn't need <laughs> ejaculation to occur. I don't think so. But uh, more vigorous copulatory, copulatory activity. Yes. So the more tricked the animal is, the more likely the orchid is able to successfully deposit its pollen onto the male in this case or get pollen off of the male again so if you have more successfully deceived your pollinator into thinking you are a really attractive female um then you're more likely to be successfully pollinated so it's better to kind of try and get that full Mm. all the way kind of so the vigorous behaviors of the male (laughs) sort of puts him in the perfect spot to yes pick up the pollen from the flower or drop it off on the other end yes Regular run-of-the-mill pollination where sort of both flower and pollinator benefit. One gets pollen, one gets nectar. Mm -hmm. This is then a very one-sided relationship, right? 
There's the flower benefits from getting pollinated, but what does a wasp get? The wasp gets nothing mm. except for maybe the joy of the, <laughs> 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 the interaction. Yes. So, in fact, it might actually be quite a big cost to the wasps to miss out mm. on mating with a female and instead give their sperm to an orchid because uh, wasps are a lot of a lot of solitary parasitoid wasps like this wasp can run out of sperm completely. Um, so every, every drop counts. And, (laughs) (laughs) and so if they give their sperm to an orchid instead of a female, they'll miss out on having their own offspring. Mm. So it's quite costly for them to do this. So it's a bit of a problem. What does that mean in the long term then? So in the long term, uh, you would expect maybe if the orchids are deceiving them enough, um, and the wasps are encountering them enough that you'd have uh, the population maybe go extinct because the males are running out of sperm and not enough females are getting sperm to have babies and keep the population going. But <laughs> should I <laughs> say the catch? Po- <laughs> <laughs> there is a catch. Mm. Um, so wasps are haplodiploid, so are bees, um, mm-hmm. and so are ants, lots of hymenoptera, um, which means that females can reproduce with or without sperm. Okay. Yes. So when they reproduce without sperm, they can only make sons. Um, With sperm, they make females, or they have a choice between making sons or daughters. And there's more of a twist. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I think it's 95% or something of sexually deceptive uh, orchids have a haplodiploid as their pollinator. So these animals that have the special ability to reproduce with or without sperm. So maybe it's better if you're an orchid and you're going to take sperm from someone, it's better to target a haplodiploid pollinator. Uh, even more compelling is <laughs> <laughs> that if you target a haplodiploid pollinator and you take sperm from them, and you stop females from getting sperm, uh, if you create enough uh, sperm-deprived females, then you have maybe those females having an overabundance of sons. So you have a population that has lots of males, and potentially from generation to generation, these populations that are targeted by orchids will have a male-biased sex ratio. which would mean that there is enough males to give their sperm to orchids or waste it on orchids, but also enough to share with a few females so that they can get some sperm and have some females or daughters and then keep the population going over evolutionary time. All right, let's go over that again. Let's go over that again. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we've got this wacky animal that... Unlike us, where sex is determined by what chromosomes you have, these guys work differently, so you can have ones that are male come from unmated females, Yes. whereas mated females can make either males or female offspring. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then we have these weird flowers. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, 
Steel sperm. Steel sperm, <laughs> to put it any other way, from males of these weird animals. Mm-hmm. Which presents us with a weird situation because if there's... If the flowers are using up the male sperm, that's less sperm for the females of the population. Yes. So, in principle, if we have a population of wasps where there are orchids, the females will be mating less because all the males are going to be sperm-deprived. Yes. So, females might be more likely to meet up with a male that's already wasted all of his sperm Mm. on an orchid. Yes. So if she mates with him, she'll get no sperm. And um, females of this species and a lot of other sol- solitary parasitoids will often only mate once in their life. So if mm. they miss out on a mating opportunity, or if they do mate with a male that has no sperm, she'll never mate again. So she'll be uh, a pseudo-virgin, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that means that there's less likelihood of her being able to produce female offspring. Uh, she can't produce female offspring at all. Yes. Yeah. Which means in the next generation, there's more males. Yes. Because there were lots of sperm-deprived females. Yes. Mothers. Yes. Which means there's more pollinators for the flower. Yep. And this spiral continues. Yes. So by or- orchids, when they steal sperm, make more pollinators for themselves. Kind all right. That's yeah. pretty clever. Yeah, well done, orchids. (laughs) And so that's why you're saying that of these deceptive orchids, most of them use these haplodiploid pollinators. Yes. It's a a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. Potentially. (laughs) Prophecy. (laughs) However you want to put it. Yes. So why don't the wasps go extinct? Why don't we end up with just an entirely male population? So the idea is that... Um, I keep saying um, sorry listeners uh, <laughs> <laughs> So when you have lots of Lots and lots of orchids if, if there's a huge amount of orchids And you're haplodiploid You might not be able to withstand that mm-hmm. So it, it's a fine balance I think But at just enough uh, orchids And just enough males So when the orchids create I think uh, sex ratio where it's about 80% males they can withstand quite high numbers of orchids so in the thousands which mm. isn't what you get in nature really uh, and so there are enough males that some will just bump into females and still have sperm so there's enough males that there is enough sperm mm. to give to females to keep the population going because those females that do get the sperm instead of an orchid will have daughters and then those daughters yeah. can keep getting mated maybe hopefully and then keep the population going <laughs> yeah so when you're doing this work you're out in the field finding these flowers yes. hanging around dog parks that sort of stuff but for this long-term population question stuff you're modeling it mathematically yes all maths yes uh, no <laughs> can you explain what on earth these models are so these are different to statistical they are models. not statistical models although when i signed up uh, to do this project I, I didn't really have a background in maths But I had a background in stats So mm. I knew enough maths to Do alright here uh, But I did have to learn a lot They're um, More They're theoretical mathematical models mm-hmm. I think sometimes they're also referred to As agent based models or individual based models uh, Except what I'm doing is a 
tiny bit different, I think, from what I've been told, uh, where you create a theoretical population of wasps, in this case, Mm -hmm. uh, based on kind of life history stuff you figured out from reading literature and uh, using various... Hmm, I don't know how to explain it nicely. Various matrices <laughs> yeah, and uh, multiplication. So you can maybe have a probability that a male will encounter a female mm-hmm. uh, or a male will encounter an orchid. And based on those probabilities, you run several days in like a season. So I'm gesticulating. I promised I wouldn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people can't see the, the hand gestures you're making. Yes. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, so say you have a 30-day season in this model that you're building on each day in that season, there's a chance that a male will meet an orchid or a male will meet a female. Mm-hmm. You run this for 30 seasons or 30 days. And you also keep track of how many times the male will mate. So before you run this model, you set uh, how likely they are to run out of sperm. Mm. And so you track during that season, uh, males' sperm capacity, so how much sperm they have left and whether they've run out of sperm. And they'll keep mating when they don't have sperm. And you uh, then let the females reproduce. And if the females have sperm, they can make females or males. Uh, and if the females don't, they can only make males. And you run that for a whole season. Then you run that for 500 generations. Mm. Uh, and then you see whether the population's gone extinct or not. Uh, and then, to see if haplodiploidy is the thing that's preventing that extinction, you compare it to a situation where the female can only reproduce when she has sperm in this model. It's basically like uh, sticking a bunch of orchids and males and females into a bag, shaking the bag up, <laughs> um, and removing the orchid, uh, like removing two things from the bag. And if it's an orchid and a male, that male wastes sperm on the orchid. Or if it's an orchid and a female the male waste sperm on the female. If it's, yeah, an or- it's if it's a male and a male, then no sperm is exchanged. Yeah, so the, the bag metaphor, it's almost like a... It's, well, is it a simulation the right word? Yes, that's a good word for it. Because it's like you're, you're summing up the biology of a species with essentially an equation. Yes. And you can put different values in this equation to change the outcomes. You can say we've got this number of generations or this number of whatever and, and and run a simulation to say what happens to these populations given given these or yes. something yeah yeah exactly so how how do you mesh those results with real world biology like obviously your the data that you use to make the equation comes from the real world yeah you're not just making up numbers. No, I wish it's, I could. It's based on reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it's kind of based on uh, lots of reading mm. and also a little bit of my own work. So I've tried to estimate kind of how quickly these males would run out of sperm. Mm-hmm. But there's lots of things that I haven't been able to figure out from at least my thesis itself. Mm. Uh, so like whether females will mate more than once mm. or... If males and females emerge, so go from larvae to adult at the same time or not. Mm. So I went through and figured all that out over like 
three or four months of reading lots of different things and yeah. getting frustrated and then kind of incorporated that into this model. And so it's not, um, it's probably not a hundred percent accurate. I don't think models ever are, but mm. they're there to kind of make a hypothesis that then you can then go out and maybe test and see if you're getting the same thing. Mm. And then that might lend some kind of support to the things that you're saying in your model. Well, I mean, there's an old quote, isn't there, that every model is wrong, just some are wronger than others. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's you know, you're using information to make a prediction about how things would happen biologically. Yes. Over time. Yes, and it's especially useful because I can't go back 500 years and see what happens when, or, or 500 years or more, when the first orchid came and deceived this wasp. Mm. So uh, it's a nice way to kind of try to figure out what might have happened over a huge periods of time. So you have this thesis. Yes. That is a perfect combination of animal behavior and mathematics. Perfect combination. Good. Which, <laughs> <laughs> as your supervisor, <laughs> I can say these things. And I'm sure everybody likes to point this out and look at you and go, isn't that interesting? Because you're the child of an animal behavior person and a mathematician. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> was this just inevitable that you would end up doing this I kind of I science? I feel like I was groomed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I can remember being a very little kid and running around and telling people. I don't know whether somebody put this into my head or whether I came up with it myself. I think somebody put it into my head. I was running around and telling people I would be a mathematical biologist. Oh. I was like five years old at primary school and saying, this is, this is what Did I'm going to do. Did you know what that was? I had then. no idea. I think okay. I was just like, my dad's a mathematician. <laughs> my mom's a biologist. How do I combine that to make them the proudest parents that is humanly possible? And <laughs> I, they must be very it. proud. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you did uh, tell us before about how your dad tried to explain your own thesis back to you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm assuming is his way of showing you how proud he is. Yes, yes. He thinks I work on tulips. Um, <laughs> Close enough. And I, he also doesn't know that I work on wasps either. I think he was like tulips and bees, which, you know, I like tulips. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm the child of a librarian and a used car salesman. So, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> that makes me. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. I can't think of a good combination of librarian car salesman. Maybe I should sell books. Yeah, Maybe car books. Used secondhand books. Yeah, there oh, you go. Yeah. Secondhand books about cars? I do, <laughs> <laughs> I do like secondhand bookshops. <laughs> Maybe that's it. <laughs> so between the two of us, all right, I've, I've learned this new concept from the depths of social media that you can be a first generation academic, mm -hmm. which I think I am. Yes. And, but you're not. No, I'm second generation. Yes. Yes. No, I learned this on social media, and this is also around the time I left social media in a huff. Okay. Because <laughs> I just couldn't handle it anymore. <laughs> and one of the things I got fed up with on social media is everybody trying to out-victim each other. I think okay. everybody had something to complain about, and there are lots of very, very valid things to complain about. And, and draw attention to and I realized I was getting very desensitized to it because of all these other people complaining about their problems that aren't really problems and you know 
I don't know. I, I feel like I always saw these things pop up on Twitter where someone would point out challenges for women in STEM and, and someone would go, you think that's hard? Try being a person of color in STEM. And somebody would up that and go, try and be a, a female person of color in STEM. And it was just this competition as to who's got it worse mm. than the next person. And it was very just... It's just it, too much. It became less about bringing attention to important issues and more about bringing attention to yourself yes, and going for sympathy things. And the thing that tipped me over the edge was this first-generation academic thing when I saw a big rant online about people don't know how hard it is to be a first-generation academic and the barriers that are put in front of you and all that sort of stuff. As a second-generation academic, <laughs> has I imagine it would actually be harder because... There might be expectations of you or, who knows, meddling from, <laughs> <laughs> from parents with opinions and things. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if it's harder. I, uh, I don't know. I feel like everybody's got their own struggles and problems and everything and everybody experiences it in different ways. So, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm inclined to say everybody's got enough problems going on that <laughs> nobody needs to uh, <laughs> compare and be like, oh no, I'm my life's harder than yours. Yeah. But uh, it's, I think it's different. Mm. I think uh, if you're a first generation academic from what I have spoken to, most of the people, academics I know are first generation academics. Yeah. Um, I, I think everything is scarier. Whereas mm. uh, I think I've, I've got a lot of benefits in that I have, I've seen my parents mark things and be like, oh, this PhD is okay. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, and I, I, um, I'm not particularly afraid of uh, doing a PhD or doing a master's. And mm. I, I, th I think I maybe take more of a relaxed attitude towards it than sometimes I should mm. because it's, it feels very much like ticking a box so you can go on to bigger and better things in your career, uh, even if it's an academic career or not. Um, and it's you, you don't want the uh, best part of your career to be your PhD. I think it's just, <laughs> I think, I think uh, so in that respect, I'm, 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 I'm not so, so scared of that. And I don't think I am going to, I don't think I get stressed out as easily as some of my friends who are doing mm. PhDs. Uh, you probably put these things on less of a pedestal because yes, you've because already seen the whole game. Both my parents have a PhD and I don't know. It's just, and it's also, speaking of expectations, getting a PhD is something that was always expected of me. I think it's, I <laughs> it was an inevitable thing. I don't know how it became inevitable because my sister is an actress. So it's not like we were um, kind of, led down mm. this path but but she's not the black sheep of the family or anything <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> no not really I think, <laughs> I think maybe uh, yeah i don't know my sister takes uh takes after my mother very much sorry mum, if you're listening um <laughs> they're both very creative and very kind of expressive and loud people and i'm a lot more like my father i think mm. um in that respect but in saying that because my sister was an actress and she's a uh, an older sister, so that that gate closed for them to 
kind of sway her more <laughs> in an academic group. <laughs> you I think were there last resort. There was, a, there was a bit more, a bit more pressure and expectation on me there, which, you know, I have enjoyed because it has really made me strive to do as good as I can. Mm. But in saying that, the pressure sometimes gets to me, and mm. uh, I really enjoy what I'm doing. But it's difficult to tell whether I'm doing it because it's what I really wanted to do or if it's I'm doing it because I've had these interests pushed on me from a mm. young age. So I don't know. But, uh, you know. That's <laughs> probably the difference between my first first generation experience <laughs> is that I never saw uh, forging my own path as any sort of uh, shortcoming or hurdle or something that I had to get over. I almost saw it as a, as a real privilege mm. that I did have the opportunity to do these things that no one else in my family had ever done before. And I just don't understand the mindset of uh, a feeling disadvantaged about it. Yeah, actually, I think... I think I agree with you there. I don't want to uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't want to get myself into any Twitter battles, but I <laughs> uh, I think I think yes. I think I've tried to forge my own path. I I really like animals and biology and science, so it was really disappointing to discover that that's kind of what I wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell my parents. I still, <laughs> I still tell my mum, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> but I, I do really like it. Um, but I, I wanted to make sure I was a bit different. Mm. So I didn't touch birds. I like birds. That's, that's your mum's thing. But birds are what my mum does. And yeah. she also does kind of... Mm, behavior a bit more and i work on behavior yes but i've got uh much more of an interest in evolution mm -hmm. and also uh in terms of my father he works on geometry and all that sort of stuff so he's very kind of tangentially related to mathematics but not the sort of maths i'm doing so i wanted to do science uh i actually wanted to do computer science but I got a bit scared out of it in my early years of undergrad. Oh, what happened? Oh, I, it was, I was the only girl in my class. Oh, no. <laughs> I couldn't take the heat. <laughs> um, so that's why I ended up doing statistics, because I wanted to do coding and work with computers, because I really mm. liked that. Uh, but I was just uh, the, I, I intimidated wow. out of computer science. I don't know why. It just happened. Um, that wasn't that long ago, though. It feels like it, it was. Thought we fixed all those problems. Seven years ago now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. But um, so I I tried to do this type of science that I liked, which was uh, I am very glad that I've been offered the opportunity to kind of merge yeah, animal behavior and evolution and that sort of stuff, as well as working with computers and mm. um, maths and coding, because I quite enjoy that. So. Hopefully, I've made a sort of distinct path, but I would have really liked to somehow figure out in my mind that this is something that I really wanted to do and not like some sort of brainwashing. But <laughs> I don't know how you ever ever <laughs> figure out the difference between that. <laughs> well, you know, as as an outside observer, I don't feel like you need external motivation to do things. You're you're pretty on the ball. You haven't seen With me play Civilization <laughs> for five hours when I'm supposed to be doing something else. <laughs> <laughs> but 
I don't know. Assuming that this is something that you do want to do yourself and that you're going to continue on with, are you at a position where you can start thinking about the next steps? <laughs> or are you too deep into thesis land and have to focus on writing and finishing this one thing you're on? I think I have to focus on finishing the one thing I'm on. Mm. I'm very deep into thesis land at the moment. And uh, I kind of don't see the... Mm, I kind of see the way out, but also I don't see how um, what I'm doing at the moment could be related to anything other than wasp sperm and orchids. And, <laughs> <laughs> and ideally, I will not be working on the same system mm. throughout my whole career. So I have to maybe toward a little bit closer to the end when I'm done writing and sent off all my drafts to mm. you, uh, I can think about how this would relate to something else. Um, a bit more, I think I want to look a bit more evolution and kind of that sort of stuff. It yeah. is a strange feeling. I don't know if everyone else feels this way, but I feel like I never have my next idea to study. There's a thing I'm currently working on, and when I finish this job, there's this fear that I won't have any other ideas for yeah. my next grant <laughs> application. <Yes. laughs> no, I, I feel the same way. Yeah. I've, ne I've actually not had to go through a grant application except for like helping other people applying for grant <laughs> applications. Um, yeah, I think... I don't know what's happening after this thesis because I don't know what else I can possibly think about. <laughs> but then, well, I've learned about this thing called a slow hunch, mm -hmm. so which I love. I think it's great. And it's this idea that we talk about eureka moments in science when the next big idea or question hits you. And it's actually a fallacy that never happens. It's that ideas form slowly over time. Mm. And they're fully formed in your head before you even realize it and you're already working on it before you've even formulated the question in your mind and i think that's definitely what's happened okay with me <laughs> and and yeah I, i've definitely saw it in my own work when i people ask me about how the paper that i published and when did i know that i'd made that discovery and it's like well i, I don't know <laughs> i just sort of just happened to you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like, <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> all the data collection takes years and you spend years thinking about it. And it's only in hindsight you get to look back and say, I've shown this and this and this and this. Yeah. And I think that's how ideas form. You just keep sort of working away. And eventually you realize you're working on something different to what you were working on before. Good to know. <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah. But... Finishing up your thesis, important questions that I ask everyone. Have you got your thesis title? No. 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 Orchid sexual deception imposes costs to pollinators. Why don't they go extinct? <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> that's my that's my working title, All but right, I, good. I I'm it's probably gonna keep changing right up till the very end. Yeah. Yeah. Thesis color? Uh, yes, I know the color scheme yeah. probably, like, <laughs> uh, like a red and white and maybe some green in there as well. Oh, hang on, how does this work? I'm talking so about like binding the, your the hard binding, copy. Yes, okay, yes. so I'll have a red copy, yes. a white copy and a green okay. copy. <laughs> <laughs> and then all my figures on the inside will have those colors too. All right. Yes, because the orchids are red and green. All right. And then I don't know why white's there. It's just useful. And are you going to keep one of... The four copies yourself <laughs> to have on the shelf. I guess so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've All got right. a friend that uses their thesis as a like a thing to put their computer monitor on because it's a good thick it's huge item. Yes. Uh 
couple of episodes ago on the podcast, I spoke to Russell Bicknell at UNE, and we talked for ages about thesis binding colors. I feel mm. like I should update people on that because okay. we talked about Russell binding his thesis in a hot pink. Oh, did he? He's now completed his PhD. It's all been accepted. It's at the printers and is getting burned in hot pink. Fantastic. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to let people on the podcast know about that. <laughs> all right. Well, on that, I shall let you get back to work. Okay, shouldn't good. I? Because <laughs> I'm meant to be your, your supervisor and... and, and cracking the whip. Motivating you and, and all this stuff. Yes. And, and I am... Uh, well assured that you're very passionate about this and this is what you want to do and it, you're not being brainwashed by your parents. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very teen angsty kind of thing to say. I don't know why that came out. but I <laughs> No, I do not think I'm being brainwashed by my parents. And also, you're a very good supervisor and you're, they've got lots of encouraging words as well as like <laughs> realistic down-to-earth chats. So thank you. See? And your podcast is great. Listen to that. I'm not just a podcast host. I can actually do science and <laughs> <laughs> supervise some things. <laughs> well, now that you've flattered me, I'm going to get very easy on your on your thesis comments. Good. So <laughs> but if people want to find out more about your research, they can follow you on Twitter. Yes. Yes. What's your handle? Yes. Should I say it? Yes. Amy B. Martian. M-A-R-T-I-A-N, <laughs> like the alien. And Amy is spelled with a Y. And Martian because? Because Martin was taken and I thought Martian would be funny. <laughs> because, I don't know, an alien. And wasps look like aliens sometimes, maybe. Is I don't know. Like when you get your first email address when you're 13 and then you think it's yep. really funny and then you have to start applying oh. for jobs. Yeah, my first email address was dedicated to my dog. It was fern underscore is underscore the underscore best at hotmail.com <laughs> she she was the best dog i'll just put that out there <laughs> and i'm guessing you don't have that hotmail anymore no it, it got like taken by i don't know started sending dodgy emails to people so it's gone <laughs> <laughs> all right let's end it on that okay <laughs> That's <a good> <laughs> <day>. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast amy thank you thanks for having me no worries and thank you guys for listening we're on social media at in situ science don't forget to check out our new patreon page where you can help financially support the podcast and our grants and everything we do thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time <laughs> <laughs>